I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast. So it's been a while, as it's always a while, because this is not my job, and I do this for fun. And I'm continuing this season uh, interviewing friends from various parts of my life who are writers. Um, And I'm really excited about our guest today, who I'll talk about in just a bit. It's been a while in some part because I run a press at Carnegie Mellon, and I left journalism a long time ago because I was tired of having the same kind of discussions about the kinds of tools that we needed to build and things like that. Um, I'd worked online for most of my life, and so, you know, after you've revved three or four of these different places, you sort of understand how the business model works and how things go and the kinds of tools that you need and don't need. Um, And so when I finished up at Technology Review, um, running their and building what is now the web operation that they have, um, I wanted to take a break, and so I went to teach. And that turned into an 11-year detour that was completely unexpected. Um, And when I wanted to get back into writing and editing, working at Carnegie Mellon's ETC Press, where I am now, seemed like a really good fit. It is a really good fit because I'd been working with Drew and, and the and the team for um, 11 or 12 years. 
Um, and so coming out here was pretty a pretty easy decision to make because we were going to ramp everything up. And little did I know that what that was going to return me to was having discussions about the kinds of tools we should use and the databases we should build and things of that nature. So for the last several weeks, and really, this has been going on for a few months, but really the last several weeks as we've started to make some decisions about what we're going to be doing, I have found myself thrust back into this world. And I know the tech world, publishing world, pretty well, or I did. Um, and it's been really fun to be meeting with people who are working with this new tool that we're using. It's a repository. Not really interesting if you're not into that kind of thing. But part of why I came out here was because we wanted to turn this academic press into something more like... Um, not a newspaper, not a magazine, but a, something that takes the both the academic and the trade work that we do around the kinds of stuff that we publish and begin to use sort of deep metrics to be able to take that work out into the places that it needs to be. So this requires a robust database. It requires lots of metadata. It requires building a front end that is accessible. And once we get all of those things in, and we have, we will have thousands of discrete pieces of data, everything from, we'll take books like Dungeons and Dreamers, my book and John's book, um, and the book will be available. But then each part, I think there's five parts in the book because they deal with different parts of games, right? So there's one part that's entirely about violence and video games. So that will be a discrete thing that will be available. So once we get this database set up, once we get all the metadata in, which is going to take several months, um, we then will be able to turn around and write these mega posts around specific topics like violence in video games, like machine learning, um, virtual reality and education. And we'll have all of these discrete bits of information, some peer-reviewed, some written by experts in the field, some written by people like me who are journalists all together in one place. And we think that's a really interesting way to think about university presses. But like so much of my career pre-teaching, this is new, and so the team is me. I have a graduate assistant who's wonderful, um, and then some other folks that kind of casually help out. But as we're building this model, it's mostly me doing, doing the work. And like I said, Jen, my graduate assistant doing all of the, the grunt work, all of the terrible things that it takes to run the internet. So all that is to say, when I've gotten home at night, the last thing I've wanted to do is think about writing. <laughs> but now that we're moving forward, we're restarting the train. Today, and I did this interview last year, early last year, um, with Lauren Gaskell, who was one of my students in the magazine program. And she was also part of the Invictus Writing Project. So the Invictus Writing Project, was I used to identify six to ten kids that I thought were, that wanted to be writers and that had potential to be writers. Wasn't a class, and then we would work, you know, we would, they'd meet at my house once a month on a Saturday. I'd make breakfast, and everybody would bring their writing, and they were personal essays. And it was all designed around this idea of the moment the moment things changed. Didn't care what the essay was about, it just had to be about some specific defining event. 
and then we would publish the book as a book at the end of the year using the technology that we actually use here at the at the ETC Press. For those that care, it's Press Books and Lulu, um, which is an amazing, cheap, fast way to publish books. So she was, and I th- I think that she was the. She may have been the editor-in-chief of the student magazine before I took it over. She definitely wrote for it. But she's one of those... It's been fun to watch her career because she is a writer through and through. Like, you know, you you see people who kind of tinker and dabble in it, and then you see people who you're like, oh, this is... They can't do anything else but write. Like, this is so fundamental to who they are. The other interesting thing is that as if you know and have listened or followed me at all throughout my life, um, I am not religious. Um, and Lauren's book is a deeply religious book. Um, and the organization that she's built around it is uh, about her faith. And so it was an interesting conversation because one, I've seen her journey from student to author. Um, it is a journey that is very different than mine. Um, when that's what makes for interesting conversation. Um, and I will continue to support her career as she goes. I'm always excited to see what she has to do and say next. And I think you will enjoy her story. So without further ado, Lauren Gaskell. So you are not the first former student that I've had, but you're the first one that's actually published their book. And I've, I don't know if I had a front row seat to it, but I've been hearing about it for a long time. Um, and I'm really fascinated by the process you went through because you didn't do just the book. Like you have this whole thing going on. So start by telling me, Sort of what was what's the book? I've read the book. The book is it's, it's obviously not the kind of book that I normally read, but I was very excited to read what you did. So how did you like? How did you come up with this idea? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for reading my book. Um, you know, it was a book that I never really intended on writing. Um, I grew up loving fiction. I went to school for magazine journalism and my dream was to be the editor in chief of a magazine. (laughs) That was my goal. Uh, but then when I graduated college, I got two job offers. I got a job offer at the dream magazine, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, and then I also got a job offer at a school district and I, I cannot explain to you why, but I just felt the need to turn the magazine Thing down, And it was in that turning that job down that I found my love for book writing. And I started writing books, which I guess you could say part of that discovery was found in Invictus. Um, I don't know if your listeners know much about Invictus, but um, so you can interrupt me if they do. But it's a it's a class that Brad taught at Ball State University. And I was in the class with about, I want to say six other people, um, memoir writing class. And so, you know, I, I feel like if I would have taken that magazine job, I wouldn't have had the extra time and energy needed to write in my spare time. Um, and in accepting a job that was still in communications, but not as heavy in the writing department, it allowed me to just 
um, be creative with my writing. So I started writing on the side and, um, during that same time I was going through some health problems and faith issues, um, just really struggling with some pretty big questions. Um, like, is there a God and, and all of those things that I think a lot of us deal with that at some point or another in life and started writing just little stories here and there and, um, went to a couple writers conferences. And then in actually 2017, um, I'm, I got an agent and she looked at the book, the first book that I had written, and she said, this is not your first book. So funny, funny story, this book, Into the Deep, Diving Into a Life of Courageous Faith, the one that is on bookshelves is not the first book that I wrote. Oh, really? Uh, no. In fact, the first manuscript, which is 55,000 words, I don't even know if it will ever see the light of day. But that was tough. I remember in Invictus, we talked, was it your class that we talked about killing your darlings, you yes. know, Kurt Vonnegut? Yes. So I kept, I remember when my agent was like, sorry, we're not doing anything with this manuscript right now. <laughs> like, I was like, are you kidding me? I You are kept- a writer. <laughs> it's not the publishing that makes you a writer. It's the, oh, I've just written a bunch of words that are never going anywhere. Yes, exactly. So um, anyways, I was like, okay, well, if this isn't the first book, if or maybe it, it will never be published, maybe it was just for me or, you know, for a small group of individuals, then then what, what do you think I should write? And uh, I was blogging on the side just pretty regularly during this time over the span of several years. And my agent was like, well, here's what I get from your blog posts. You are all about helping people fight for faith and you have a unique story. You've been through some pretty hard things. She's like, why don't you write some sort of memoir, nonfiction, um, just inspirational type of book that catalogs your journey in losing and reclaiming your faith. Um, and so that was ironically up until that point, I had been on my own submitting that manuscript that still has yet to see the light of day and getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And then with a little guidance of my agent helping me pinpoint, you know, more of what I was passionate about, but I just hadn't tapped into it yet. Um, we got three offers, which was just after five years of seeking <laughs> publishing, I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> so I kind of remember, like we had some conversations during this time period. So I, I kind of remember, I don't think I knew that that Into the Deep wasn't the book that you were talking about, um, which is, that's interesting. So, uh, and and we'll talk a little bit more about what happened after, but so are you from, where are you from? So I am from Elkhart, Indiana, a small little town in northern Indiana. Most of you, if you've heard of it, probably know it because of Notre Dame, um, which is right next door. But now my husband and I live in Raleigh. So if you hear a little bit of a southern accent, we've been here two years, so it's slowly growing on me. So my voice is in distress. It does not really know what to do. (laughs) So do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I have a sister. Her name is Ashley Klein, and she lives in Seattle. She um, is working for Amazon currently, but be watching for a fashion line from her. Um, We grew up in a family. My dad is very creative, um, and obviously I went the writing route, and she is a fashion designer. And what did your dad do? My dad is a lot of things. Um, (laughs) First and foremost, he is a musician. He 
So he actually, his, his 70th birthday is today. Um, so he's going to not like me very much because I'm dating him. But like he did the whole Woodstock. Um, he actually manufactured guitars for a company called Silver Street Guitars. He designed and manufactured them, toured the United States with like, I, I don't even remember some of the names, um, some of the bands. Huey Lewis in the News, I think, yeah. was one of them. I can't wait. Uh, no, you're so young. How do you not remember Huey Lewis in the News? <laughs> continue um, yeah. continue young writer yes um so he's a musician but he's also just you know marketer designer photographer i mean he has a lot of creative talents and i mean my mom i gotta give her some credit she's got some creativity going on but i credit a lot of um just my my love for writing and the arts to my dad for sure and what did your mom do um, my mom is, she stayed home with us and then she went back to x-ray. I, I believe the correct term is technologist. I never get it right, but she's the person who you go into the doctor, you think you have a broken arm and she takes an x-ray. So <laughs> pretty and, important job. And so what was, were they, I'm assuming with a creative dad and two daughters of his that were creative, like, were they supportive? Like, were you guys doing lots of arty stuff when you were younger? Oh, gracious. I think I played every single musical instrument known to mankind. Okay, no, that's a lie. I never ventured into the brass category, but we had ukuleles, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, bass guitar, piano, oboe, clarinet, flute, piccolo. I mean, we we had like a small band going on, and we never actually <laughs> recorded anything, which super bums me out. Um, but they always encouraged us. Like I remember when I was really little in elementary school. And I was writing stories about dinosaurs back then. And my parents were so proud of me and they would, you know, we'd sit down and we'd read the stories together and maybe talk about how they could be improved. And so they were, they were editing your dinosaur stories. They were editing my dinosaur <laughs> stories. Yes. These are also the same parents though, Brad, that when I came home with a C minus on a first grade math test, they, they were like, do you need a tutor? And I was like, no, I just stink at math. <laughs> so there was no pressure to be very good at the things that you did? Um, I wouldn't say pressure. <laughs> I would say encouragement. Yeah. A tutor yeah. in first grade is pressure. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the things that I was bad at. Yeah. Yes. Pressure. <laughs> uh, and so... When it, so you were writing from an early age. Like, that was a thing that you just did. Yeah. I. It's kind of embarrassing, but I have... So in sixth grade, I wrote a book called Dilly the Dork. And <laughs> it's about this girl that gets stood up to, like, her junior high dance and the world ends, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I've always loved stories. You know, my mom... Um, she read to me, some people might think this is crazy, but she read to me when I was inside of her and she, from the moment I was born, she read nighttime stories. She read morning stories. So I think a lot of that had to do with the way that I've turned out the way that I have, because I've just always been around stories. Yeah. My mom was the same way. Like from the time I was, I mean, I don't remember a time when like books were not <laughs> I mean, I had a library in my room when I was like 10 years old um, of like, I would just make them buy me books all the time, uh, which I'm very happy about now. But I've sort of looked back and I'm like, oh, I was kind of a super nerd. <laughs> like, I had like 
every Hardy Boys, every Nancy Drew, every like Isaac Asimov. I just had like hundreds of books scattered around my room. Okay, so I I love Nancy Drew. So the Hardy Boys. So fun fact, my maiden name is Hardy, and I kid you not. I was asked all the time growing up if I was related to the Hardy Boys. I'm like, y'all know that that's fiction, right? <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> it's all part of the reading comprehension problem we have in America. Yes. It's so odd. Like, I used to um, – I, mean, I guess it's not odd, but it's odd for somebody my age to say this. So you know how you do, like, imaginary play, whatever. When I was young, like, I didn't want to be one of the Hardy Boys. I always played Nancy Drew. That's great. Yeah, like Nancy that, Drew kicks butt. I know she's amazing. Like the Hardy Boys were fun, but I was like, I don't know what it was about it. So as I've gotten older, and like I've sort of, you get into the publishing world, and I see people like, ah, boys don't read books with girls as protagonists. I'm like, I was literally playing Nancy Drew as a kid, uh, and like that was my favorite. Like I loved her stuff. So That's awesome. You get it. You also so you get into high school. What was high school like? Like, were you super already there, too? Like, did you continue on, or what was... Yeah, high school was... Um, high school was interesting. I, I feel like I just have a lot of passions, and I didn't really know where to channel all of that passionate energy, but I did end up landing on marching band, symphonic band, and swimming, which swimming really isn't, I guess, creative, per se. Um, but really my focus was on marching band and symphonic in terms of creativity. And then we, um, we ended up bringing the yearbook back. Um, it's kind of a long story. Our school had decided that it was just too much work to keep the yearbook, um, going. And when I say that, I mean, at one point in time, there were stories, there were narratives in the yearbook. And at one point or another that had gone away and, I was part of the group that helped bring that back, and we started including stories about students back in the yearbook again. Um, so that was another thing that I was involved in. That does not surprise me at all. <laughs> so at some point, and I don't know if, like, did you grow up in a family of faith, or is this a thing that you've come to on your own? Because I know, I mean, not only is the book about that, but even when you were in college, that was a a big strand that ran through what you did. Sure. Yeah. Well, I am really fortunate. I, you know, every family has its struggles and my family is not perfect. In fact, I write about that in the memoir that I wrote for Invictus, but they are all people of deep faith. And my grandpa and grandma specifically, I mean, they you read in the Bible, like you're supposed to be like Jesus. I mean, they are like Jesus. Like <laughs> they are just the most kind, compassionate, giving, sacrificial. I mean, and it's not fake. Like it's just who they are. And I was so lucky to grow up around that. Um, just they, they could have, they could have mansions if they wanted to, but they've chosen to give, um, to their family, to communities, to invest in things that they believe in. So, Growing up with that model, um, I, I grew up in the church. I, you know, said all those prayers and read all the Bible verses, memorized all the verses. But I, I like to say my faith didn't really become my own until college because 
Um, it's one thing to grow up and be told what to believe. It's another thing to have to come to grips with the world um, and, and choose, like, am I actually going to believe what I was raised to believe or is it all just, you know, a load of crap? And <laughs> um, so that's, that's kind of where I was at in college. It's, but that seemed to be a – I don't think I knew that you were struggling with that. Oh, I hit it really well. <laughs> I mean, obviously, and I would not be the kind of person that somebody would come to and be like, Brad, I have a deep problem with my faith. Like, I need your sage advice on that. Um, you also, when you were in college, didn't you, didn't you run ball bearings? Didn't you run the magazine? Yeah, those were some of the best days ever. Oh, man, I loved so – Some people listening might think that I'm crazy when I say this, but I kid you not, when I visited Ball State University, I told my mom and dad, and I think I told Dr. Sumner, I was like, I am going to become the editor-in-chief of Ball Bearings. (laughs) And um, I'm sure sure Doc loved that. Oh, I'm sure. He was like, oh, this, this girl is so cute. She... She, her, her dreams haven't been squashed yet. Um, that was but, more of a me attitude. I think Doc was pretty supportive about people. <laughs> <laughs> I was more of the, like, are you sure you want to be a writer? Like, it's a terrible, awful profession. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, who was Was it you? There was somebody at some point in college where I remember they, they told me, they said, enjoy this because this, this is the last time that you are going to be able to be your own boss and do whatever you want, which yes. they were wrong. They were wrong. <laughs> that was, was that me you? though. <laughs> that was you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is exactly the kind of thing that I would tell people. Like you're going to oh, go out in the world yeah. and it's going to be terrible. Which it, it was for a while, but now I am my own boss, and I guess we'll probably get to that eventually. But um, yeah, ball bearings was great. I that was my uh I've written stories for a long time, but that was like getting my hands dirty for the first time, if you will. Like I remember going to Indianapolis and when the explosion happened and interviewing, you know, the people who had lived in those homes who were in the homes when they exploded and that kind of storytelling, it was, it was a powerful experience and deeply enriched my writing career. So I want to talk a little bit because colleges were at least that sort of where, our spheres intersected and I'm really interested in like as you were struggling with your faith but also like doing ball bearings and and doing the Invictus project your your class was actually that was the only time I taught it as a class most of the time I taught it at my house on Saturdays and it was like not for a grade um you had Lacey and Andrew who yes. were who those three sto- like your three stories were pretty powerful um stories so as you're sort of working through the writing and your faith and things like what you were talking to me about wanting to write a book, I remember in the class, in the Invictus class, you sort of had this sense that you had a bigger story that you wanted to tell. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, and that was the first manuscript um, that... What's that about? Sure, well, it's the working title is Positively Lovely, and... It's really more about identity um, because my struggle with anxiety, depression, and chronic pain from the connective tissue disorder I have really led me to a place where um, for a, a long time I felt pretty worthless inside. And I think 
you know, I, I was always striving, always working, always dreaming and, and working really hard. But on the inside, I, if I really stopped all of the work that I was doing, um, there was a big part of me that felt again, pretty, pretty worthless, just, just a broken human being. Um, so positively lovely was, part of my journey in recognizing that, no, I am not worthless. Um, and neither are you. That was my point for the reader. Um, and just uncovering like, who are we as human beings and what are we even here for? Um, and so that, that was the premise of positively lovely. And that's what I was working through, um, in college because interesting. So in high school and, and you read into the deep, so you know this, but in high school, um, was when, the panic attacks, the depression, all that junk started. And then I relapsed in college and se- several times. Relapsed. Um, what does that mean? With the panic attacks. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I would go through periods of like, I'm fine. Everything's great. And then I would have panic attacks every single night, like all night long and not sleep. Um, and now we know that at least my doctors say that a lot of that panic attack stuff, and I don't really have that as much anymore, praise God, but was my body, my brain trying to um, cope with my body falling apart from the connective tissue disorder. So at the same time, I was having joint dislocations and injuries and pain. And um, you probably didn't know this about me either, but like literally I would wake up specifically the year that I was in Invictus with lockjaw. Um, you actually told, you told me that. Oh, I did. Okay. You did because there would be, I don't know if you missed class or you were, you were behind on some stuff and it was reluctant, but yes, yes. And so, and up until that point in life, you know, I had managed to deal (laughs) and hide what I was dealing with pretty well. And that was the first instance, especially with lockdown where, okay, you cannot, you can't talk, you can't eat. Um, and, and then not just that, but the pain that comes with that. Um, I like to say that in college, it's not that I was faking it in class, but really I put all of my energy into class. And then when I got home, I like just fell apart. I had nothing left. It's interesting um, because I did not ever, if you would have asked me to describe you, it like, um, Darkness isn't a word like that's not the right word, but like it was very clear that you were struggling with things like you. Mm. You did not seem happy and bubbly to me. Mm. You did not seem you were very driven um, more so than a lot of young writers, even writers. Um, I mean, you were like, this is what I want to do. This is like we, you and I would argue about the like. Not, I don't know if argue is the right word, but you were very forceful in telling me, like, I'd say, well, this is what I want you to do. And you're like, this is the <laughs> thing that I want to do, which as a writing, you know, as somebody working with writers, that's what you want. Like, you sort of knew what that was, or you knew what you wanted to say, or you knew what you wanted to try. And I'm old enough to know that doesn't come from somebody unless they've had to struggle with stuff, if that right. makes sense. Right. Yes. Well, I, I'm sorry that I wasn't more bubbly. I no, my God. That- uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think people, um, I think if, if everything was perfect in my life, which 
nothing is perfect in anybody's right. life, but I think that that would be too much bubbliness for anyone to handle. Um, so right. yeah, <laughs> but I, that was why I enjoyed you as a writer was because people that are like happy and smiley all the time. I just distrust. I'm like, you're either not telling me what's going on <laughs> or you are living a life to which I have no actual connection and concept to. Yeah, um, I, I got to tell you, that was actually part of my frustration in high school and college. And hopefully this isn't too much of a tangent, but like I got super, and this is one of the reasons why I chose to write this book. Cause this is a very, it's a relatively vulnerable, vulnerable book. Um, but I got frustrated with, People like I would go to adults and I would try to get them to share something that they went through that was painful and how they got through it because I was trying to grapple with like how am I going to get through this right um and what do I even believe anyways and some people were real with me some adults were real but most of them just gave that like sugar coated answer or like didn't go super deep um didn't really share a lot and i was like okay so i am the only person who is <laughs> struggling with with thoughts of killing themselves and is like secretly miserable on the inside awesome i am the only person and that's that's a lie but i i didn't know any better because people weren't authentic it's honestly why i started the invictus project um, I think you guys were the third or fourth, but the the project, and I haven't talked a whole lot about it on the program, but essentially I would bring, before it was a class, I would select writers who I thought showed promise and who wanted to be writers. So you couldn't just be somebody that was like a good writer but wanted to be a marketing person. And... I would say we're going. you're going to write a first-person narrative, and it's going to be about the moment everything changed. Whatever that moment is, you're going to spend – when it wasn't a class, we'd spend two-thirds of a school year. They'd come over to my house like two Saturdays a month. I'd make them pancakes, and we'd all write and stuff. But it's exactly for that reason, right? And like we'd go through – there was like a very clear progression of – people writing very surface-like stories and then us sort of culling down and getting into the, like, no, no, no. Like, you have to get into the nitty-gritty because the li- life is nitty-gritty. Like, nobody is happy, <laughs> right? Like Life is very nitty-gritty, yes. Um, and to pretend like... And, and it's in that nitty-gritty that the universal comes out, right? When you... Just like you felt. If somebody gives you a platitude, you're like, well, that's bullshit. Like, that's... Right. That's not a thing, right? Like, exactly. The world doesn't need more platitudes. Right. It, it doesn't. You feel blown off and not heard, right? Like, um, Andrew Nalen wrote a story. His I don't know if you remember this, but his father committed suicide three weeks into the <laughs> class. He hadn't talked to his father in, like, six years. And he's writing a story about his father, and then this thing happens. And he and I had lots of meetings, and I made him go see a counselor while he was writing it. But it would the first story was the first draft was him basically being pissed off at his dad. And if you remember, the last draft was him writing a story from his dad's point of view as his dad descended into the mental yep. illness that killed him. Right. And it was this like he and I have talked about that in the year since. Like I'm still in touch with him. And that's just one of those things that he's like, that was like holy shit. Like to go from hating my father to trying to understand my father, I think has shifted his perspective on how he looks at life. Yeah. And I think what I love about that story is that 
I think we, we can do the same thing to ourselves, right? Like we can all come to a, a point in our life where we don't like our story and we can either choose to fall into self-loathing or self-hatred, or we can try to understand who we are as human beings, give ourselves grace and move forward. And that's what I like about Andrew's story. And you're not going to like me very much because I'm pretty sure. Um, so I wrote about my dad, right? Yeah. Okay. So, um, fun fact, Brad, um, the, the panic attacks that I write about in, in into the deep, that was what I really should have wrote about, but I was too, I was too scared to write about it. And I, I kid you not, I kid you not. When I wrote the chap, that chapter where I talk about in detail, what it felt like to have a panic attack, I had another relapse in my freaking mid twenties. And I was like, this is why I didn't want to write this, but I had to go through it because it just brought me so much more understanding um, and helped me finally deal with some of those like nagging fears that had been haunting me for years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's interesting. I was, so I had therapy this morning and I am, I've been writing this book for five years about my family. They're famous, whatever. And uh, the first part of the book is, so I grew up in Appalachia, a small town, like working class people all around. And the first part is trying to explain, like, why these rural people have this anger that they have. Um, and I am not part of that world anymore, even though that's my home. And so anyway, the sort of long or the short version of it is after like two years of therapy, I hadn't been able to I hadn't been able to edit the book with any empathy. Mm. And it was just a lot of platitudes and like me pontificating about stuff and it never felt right. And so something clicked about two months ago, and now I'm, I'm editing a chapter every day. And, I, and, and therapy today was literally the first three chapters of the book. And my mm. therapist looked at me, and she was like, well, you're reprocessing your child. Like, all of that pain and trauma and stuff yep. that you went through, she's like, that's what writing is for you. And, like, therapy gets you to the point where you can then process it on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always felt like that's what writing that, – that's what writing has always been to me. That was what Invictus was supposed to be. When I read into the deep, I'm like, oh, this is Lauren processing. But also, you're also like, it's a little bit different than mine because you're actually then saying, well, here are the Bible verses or here's the way, you know, these, you're sort of using parables from the Bible as the summary, right? As to say, like, here's the greater lesson that you can learn from it. But it's still processing, right? Like that book was you processing your life. Exactly. And, and hoping, I mean, I, I really do think that a lot of people struggle with, um, no two shades of pain are the same, but at the end of the day, a lot of us find ourselves asking the same questions. And so the whole time I was writing this book, I was like, okay, what are the questions and frustrations and struggles that I had and how did I process through those? And then, okay, let's put those stories on paper so that if someone is out there and they, feel like they're drowning or maybe they just want to understand more about this faith thing. Like how can they understand it and, and walk through it themselves through the eyes of my story? Um, and I, and I use other stories. Like I try to bring in anecdotes, not just from the Bible, but like other women that I've come across sure. who um, totally kick butt in the whole overcoming struggles category. But, <laughs> yeah. but they're from the Christian community, right? I mean, this is, this book is a, 
I mean, I read it. Right. I'm not a Christian. Like, I read it and wasn't like, oh, I can't relate to any of this. But the, the stories that you're telling sort of come from that world. Right. They definitely come from that world. But my hope is, like, I hope that even if, you know, somebody isn't a believer and that's totally fine, that they can read it and still, like, regardless of what your belief system is, there's still some good nuggets for just overcoming difficulties in life. Um, do, you, do you think that you wrote that because of your experiences with adults when you were younger, not interacting with you in a way beyond platitudes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Because, I mean, in college, I was like, well, actually, no, I think it was more post-college. I just, I kept thinking to myself because I was making progress in my journey. And it's like, if I would have had somebody who was just honest and raw and vulnerable with me and shared their process and what they went through, I think that I would have felt a lot less, um, I don't know if shameful is the right word, but I did carry around a lot of shame because I felt like I was the only one. So I was like, shoot, well. The only one what? The only one struggling with with something. With your faith or with your health or just with everything. (laughs) Everything. I mean, I was suicidal. I was struggling with faith. I was, you know, in pain almost every day. And, um, I just, I couldn't find for the longest time, I couldn't find anybody to just, just like sit with me in that, you know, and, and be like, Hey, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. I went through something pretty bad too, and it's going to be okay. Um, and here's why it's going to be okay. That's interesting. So you didn't have that connection with Andrew and Lindsay and the people in the Invictus because that was not every story out of that class was great, but those like Lindsay and Andrew were really sort of digging into to deep stuff. Yeah, I don't know if that's that's a good point. Um, I bring that up because I think that. This was my perception of. It. I asked you a question. And I'm going to interrupt and I'm going to answer it for you. My perception. That's good. <laughs> my perception at that time was that, um, the fact that you wore your faith that was a big part of who you were and what you talked about. I don't know whether that created a separation with them because I don't think either one of those are believers. I don't know that. You don't fill out an application in my class. Um, <laughs> but it, I, I wonder if that was part of that. Um, yeah, I think I think for me, like the relationship that I'm talking about is maybe more of like a, a mentor or a counselor. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think in terms of the class, I think that I was so busy in that season of my life that I did not, um, and you live and you learn, right? There's different seasons in life, but I did not engage with people as much as I probably should have. So I think I'm pretty sure that that semester I was also living by myself. Mm -hmm. Well, Um, but that also may have been the struggle, right? Like that may have been, you know, you didn't ever seem like a cop, like Lindsay and Andrew didn't seem like college students. Like you never, you guys seemed like adults that were there <laughs> and ready to be out in the world. Um, you know, with you three, it was more guiding and getting out of your way than it was teaching. And so it felt to me like when you got in touch with, we, you know, cause we've kept in touch as you were working on the books and projects and, 
you know, I'd introduce you to folks when I could, but it all, like you, again, like you had a direction that you, it seemed like you had a direction that you knew you wanted to go in. You didn't exactly know how to get there, but you were in the car driving, (laughs) you know, and if you had to like zigzag a little bit, you were going to do it. Right, right. Well, and I think, you know, for anybody listening who is working on a book and maybe they're not published yet, I think that um, definitely part of it is is who you know. Um, I I would not. Well, I shouldn't say this, but there's a chance that without my agent that um, I would still be trying. But what I will say is that determination is definitely just as big of a role as who you know, because I got, I, I, I can't even count how many rejection letters I got to the query letters that I sent out. And, but I was like, by golly, I am gonna, I, I just believed it in my soul that I was going to have a book published. Um, and I think that that, like I said, that's the key is you just, you know, if you know what you want, then just don't give up because the difference between people who get published and who don't get published, it's not necessarily always writing ability. You know, sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's just sheer dogged tenacity. (laughs) So you leave college, uh, and you, you, you met your husband in college. Yeah. So I actually met him in high school. We did not attend the same high school, but um, we grew up in the same hometown and then met through a mutual friend the summer before our senior year. Uh, but he did go to Ball State as well. Yeah. And so you graduate and you, I, you we had a phone call about the job. Right. Um, because you were asking me if you were crazy for not taking the magazine job. How How soon did that happen after... You graduated. Oh, gracious. I think it was like a month. We moved, we, our whole entire life changed in a month. We moved to Minnesota. Um, we affectionately call it Minnesota. <laughs> and the winter that we moved there was um, Winter Storm Hercules. We actually were driving in Hercules. <laughs> and then a week later, my, my now husband proposed to me on a frozen lake when it was negative 25 degrees outside. And I love this man. I've been with him 10 years as of this year, um, if you count dating. But I was like, yes, can we please get back in the freaking car? <laughs> like, I cannot right. handle this. Um, so, so you yeah. guys weren't married when you moved up there? No, no. Gotcha. We, we, I mean, not to be cliche, but like we always knew we were going to get married. Right. We just didn't want to be married in college because... Yeah. We're both so independent and nothing against people who do get married in college. That just wasn't our style. Right. So, and you guys weren't even engaged when you were moving up there. Sorry, I didn't turn off my phone. That's okay. <laughs> my dog will probably make an appearance here in a minute, so it doesn't matter. So you're driving up there. He got a job. Yeah. Like you didn't have a job when you were going up there. Um, I, we both actually got job offers on the same day. We did have jobs. Um, so gotcha. I accepted the position with Edina Public Schools, and he was doing sales for some uh, – I don't even remember the company because, let me tell you what, they uh, laid him off later that year right before Christmas. I kind of have a rag back in – yeah, I remember that Facebook post. Yeah, so that, was, that was fun. You take – you decide not to take the magazine job, and you take this job with a school district. So you have – have you started writing the unpublished book? Yes. 
So you took the you took the school job because you're like I'm finishing this book and this is going to be what I do. Yes. And then that didn't work out. Nope. <laughs> and so um, that was like a year after you got up there, yeah. Ah, I'm trying to remember how long I worked for the school district. It was just a couple of years, I think. Yeah, it was a couple of years. So. And did you finish the book while you were working for them? I did. And actually, what was really crazy was that right before we got married in 2014, so that was a year in a year and a half, I believe, into the job, um, I had finished the book. And our marriage mentor couple from our church was the, pre- the the husband was the president of Bethany House Publishers, which in the Christian world, they're a pretty big publisher. And um, you were really excited about that. Oh, it took every single yeah. part of my being to be like, you are not going to be that person who is like, and I have a book because. <laughs> right. Except for that I you just, did. No, I didn't. Oh, you did. I was like, I am not going to be that person. I am not going to abuse this relationship. But what I, what I did was that at the end of our mentoring times together, I sent him a thank you. And I said, I just want to let you know that you know, I think Bethany is great and I'm a writer and, you know, someday it would be great to have a book published by Bethany. And then we got to talking a little bit and I told him about my manuscript. Um, and they actually, they looked it over and what was really neat was that they provided feedback, which they did not have to do. Right. Um, which is a big deal. Like publishing houses don't do that. Exactly. I felt incredibly honored and, um, just very thankful, but, what he said was, he was like, you're too young, to yeah. be honest with you. I was 21 at the time. Um, so you're too young. And also, I did not have much of an online presence. Um, so, But I, he gave me so much great feedback that I was like, okay, this kind of burns a little bit, but these are the things that I need to do. And so let's work on those things and just keep chugging along. Yeah. I actually remember we had two phone calls or two whatever email. Yeah, that was right before you introduced me to Julia Roller. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who I went to graduate school with. Uh, yeah. Cause you initially were like, what should I do with this Bethany thing? And then you did the thing and then I didn't hear. And I think that I sent a note or something. And you were like, it did not work out. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And even, even, uh, and I love Bethany house, but even at the writer's conference that I went to, I thought for the longest time, and I ended up going with Abingdon Press, who is in Nashville. But I thought for the longest time, I was like, it's going to be Bethany. It's going to be Bethany. It's going to be Bethany. And then um, they they did make somewhat of an offer, but it was going to require me to make too many changes to the manuscript. Um, and that's and for so Into the Deep? That's for Into the Deep, yeah. Um, so we'll see. Who knows? I, I love Abingdon, though. They um, I have nothing but high praise for them. They're, they've been great to work with. And... So when did you start writing Into the Deep? Oh, see, okay, so this is where it gets interesting because there were some chapter... Oh. No, I should should back up. (laughs) There were some... um, Bits and pieces? Bits and pieces (laughs) that my agent was like, okay, so these are golden nuggets and we should find a way to integrate these into Into the Deep because they fit with the... Like when I sat down and I plotted out part one and part two and all of the chapters, some of those stories were very applicable. 
Um, but I would say that 90% of the manuscript was new and I wrote it. Oh, this is so horrible. This was only like a year and a half ago and I can't even remember. Um, (laughs) it doesn't get better as you get older. No, (laughs) I, I want to say I wrote it over the course of two months, which looking back on it, I am I'm starting to work on my second book now and I'm finding a really hard time because I'm just not, to be honest with you, I'm not being as disciplined as I was with Into the Deep, but I was like, all right, you are writing for five hours today and you are writing for three hours tomorrow and six hours the next day. And I had a schedule um, and it was, I kind of missed that time a little bit because it was very challenging to uh, just my writing craft. And I think it being that discipline made me a better writer. Yeah, well, and along the way, you didn't just do the book. Like, you have this whole other, like, <laughs> thing around it. Yeah, so that's all another story. Um, so I mentioned that I took a job with the school district, and I kind of worked what seemed like all of these random, didn't have anything to do with each other jobs. I got a job for a marketing agency and I was doing website design and, um, competitive analysis and SEO and content marketing. Anybody um, that would pay you. Well, actually they, they sought me out. Um, but I just mean you were just taking jobs that people were like, Oh yes, I will go do that. Yeah. I'm finishing yeah. my book. Yes. Let me, this, this is true. Yeah. But what was, what was crazy is that, you know, I would sit with my boss in meetings and he'd be like, where do you see yourself with the company in five years? And I would just be like, I don't, (laughs) I I, I just, I can't even explain it. I always knew that. Did you say that? No. Okay, good. (laughs) Why would I? No, of course not. I don't know. There's some shit that I I would say something like that. Like, well, I won't be here. (laughs) It falls into the Bethany house category. There's just certain things that apparently I don't have the, um, clout, the clout to say. Oh, but your dog's going to make an appearance, too. He is. Reese, um, he just loves to bark at everything. So sorry about that, y'all. But, yes, so I am working all these random aimless jobs and just writing on the side, still working on the book. And I started a podcast. Um, and it was through that that I discovered my love for speaking. Uh, which is another form of communication. I mean, not every single writer is a great speaker necessarily, but I think that the heartbeat of who we are as writers, we are storytellers. And if we are storytellers, then with the right amount of practice and coaching, we can be speakers too. We can put um, a ver- we can put a voice to what we're talking about. And so, I started the podcast in 2016, started doing women's events um, that the, winter. The podcast is called? The podcast is called She Found Joy. Um, which is what also, this whole Oprah empire has turned into. <laughs> I actually did not come up with the name. Um, that's a whole other story. That That's like a 10-minute story. It's crazy. But... Um, Yeah. And now we do, let's see, we're three years into the ministry and we still have the podcast. Um, and now we do a national event tour. Um, last year we did eight events and this year we're looking to do 14. Um, so, and this is yours, right? Like this is you own this, you run this. Yes. Yes. So I am the president and then I have an executive director. Um, we have, 
an advisory council of eight people. Um, and then we have a lot of volunteers and interns that help us because it takes an army to run something like this. But, um, so, okay. You like, you're acting like this thing just happened. So you got to back <laughs> up. And so you have the podcast and what's the podcast about? So the podcast, I actually started it right around the time that I received my diagnosis. So for those of you listening, I have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is basically a fancy way of saying that um, my body does not synthesize the proper amount of collagen needed to um, form my joints properly. It affects other parts of your body as well, Um, your eyes, your mental health, your gastrointestinal function, things that you probably don't want to know about. Um, (laughs) but you know, I, I got slammed with that in 2015 and, um, although you had had been feeling the effects of that, right? Like that was, Oh, Oh yeah. I mean that. So when I talked about the panic attacks and the pain and all that stuff in high school, that was the start of Ehlers-Donlos. We just didn't have a name for it. So you had like eight years of not knowing why your body was not feeling right. Yep. Yep. And I, I honestly thought I was crazy, uh, like I said earlier, and I just was like, you just need to suck it up and deal with this. And then I got married, and my husband was like, mm, no, this isn't normal. You yeah, need to see it. Yeah, that's <laughs> crazy. And um, so, yeah, it's – when you get slammed with something like that, when you have a major life event, I don't care where your faith is, it's going to be shaken a little bit. So I had made some progress, but I kind of backslid a little bit. And – really lost my joy for several months. I was pretty bitter. Um, I was just angry. I was like, for real God, like I have recommitted my life to you and you're slamming me with this. Like what? And so, uh, in the spring of 2016, I had had enough and I was sick of being bitter. I was sick of being depressed and I was like, okay, it's time to get the joy back. So, Really, when I started the podcast, um, it, it wasn't just me trying to help listeners find joy in hard seasons of life. It was I was trying to learn <laughs> just as much as they were sure. trying to learn. Um, so and then through that, what was incredible was uh, it, after about six months of recording these episodes and listening to women who had had sections of their tongue removed from, you know, having throat cancer like five times and, um, losing their husband and just how they found joy again, um, really reinvigorated, not just my faith, but it helped me get my joy back. And so that's what, that's what I try to help women do. Get the joy back. Was it this, was it a Christian thing or was this, was this something that was sort of outside of your faith? Like the podcast, um, when you were thinking about it, like, what was this about? Yeah, so I would say it was a little bit of both, um, because I believe that true joy is found in Jesus and in knowing that our future is secure in him um, and all of the things that are found in his word. But um, I also, you know, just outside of faith was sick of being miserable. Like it's just, <laughs> it's not fun to walk around and just feel miserable all the time. And then, so the podcast takes off. Yep. And yeah. Then, and then what comes next? And then I just felt God telling me to host a live event. And I was like, no. Um, and he made that pretty clear uh, that that was not, 
that that was not an okay answer. And so <laughs> I, I went ahead and I love sharing the story because it kind of, the, the seeds were planted in my heart in like July and I didn't finally commit to hosting an event until October and the event was in December. So who plans an event in two months? I mean, I, I have to give, like, I put a lot of work in, but I have to give a lot of credit to God because it was insane. It was insane. I mean, I just had people like volunteering to donate catering and like I had people just donate centerpieces. And I thought that 50 women were going to show up and we had 200 women there. Really? And so I was like, okay, um, apparently there's a need for this. And apparently women are looking hungry for community and they're hungry for positive life change. And so let's give them that. Um, and so in 2017, I was not ready to expand yet. So I just did one again. Um, and then, you didn't, you didn't, we were like, did that thing really happen? Yeah. That was sort yeah. of it, right? Like, ah, I know I did it, but can I do it again? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. And, then, and then after I did the second one, somebody came up to me. And actually several people did. But the first person who came up to me said, you need to take this on the road. Like, why are you not doing this in multiple cities? And I, I just thought to myself, well, I have a full time job. Um, but hmm, maybe, maybe. And that was when I started really exploring, like, what could this look like to turn this into a traveling, a touring thing, um, which is a big undertaking for anyone to do, let alone somebody with an illness like I have. Um, but we together as a team made it happen last year. We went to eight cities and it is, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I do make it sound like, Oh, it just happens. But I mean, right now, um, I am trying to get venues and cities and dates and contracts secured for all the cities that, you know, we really feel led to go to this year. And not just on top of that, I got to fundraise, you know, because money doesn't just come out of nowhere and putting on events is expensive. It's very expensive. Um, so, and I, I have to pay speakers. I have to pay my staff. So it, it is a lot of work, but I think that a lot of the disciplines that I've learned in writing, um, have carried over to running a business because again, it comes back to discipline and determination, what we talked about earlier. And, um, you will never, <laughs> There will never be more discipline required of you than um, if you choose to become a business owner. Let me tell you that. Because so is this it, a nonprofit or is it a for profit? It's it's a nonprofit. I guess if you're fundraising, it's a nonprofit. Yep. And yeah. and so is that? Do you think going to be like as you think about writing the next book? Is it around this? Like, are you? I was joking about Oprah, but not really. Like, are you, <laughs> do you think that you're building your writing career around that? Or do you think your writing career is going to go into a different direction away from this? So yes and no, Brad. So <laughs> That is the answer I, to every question. <laughs> I would say that there are definitely several more books that I think um, are very appropriate for the She Found Joy events and audience that, you know, I will bring to the cities that we go to, but I also really do have a passion for fiction. I don't know if you knew that about me and I have two fiction books that are not finished, but they are, I'll just sit down every now and then maybe it's a Saturday morning and inspiration strikes and I'll just start writing in those fiction books. So 
I really would like to do fiction someday too. Um, but I, I know that I have a couple more nonfiction books in me and then we'll just, we'll just see what happens. So you're not, you are not planning the career around the business that has sort of come out of this. No, no, not at all. And I, I think that into the deep coming out when the tour happened was just divine providence. I mean, I, the contract was offers were not coming in. They weren't coming in. They weren't coming in. And I told my agent, I said, look, I know that we're really pushing hard to have this come out for the tour, um, next year, but if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And like this year we don't have a book coming out. Um, so I think the timing, it just, it was crazy that it lined up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's good because writing oftentimes it's, you know, you can, I'm not here to judge writers and what they do, but you see people churning out, like they tell you as a writer to build your audience and to build your platform and to do all those things. And then you're supposed to write books into that platform. Um, yeah, is, see that, that just makes, sorry to interrupt you, but no, no. That, that's just unhealthy. And that's just, gonna right? to, it's just going to lead to crappy work and burnout. And there's a book, um, present over perfect by Shauna Nequist. And, um, she, she is a Christian, but it's written like, it's not, there's not a whole lot of that kind of stuff in there, but it, it's, it's all about leaving behind frantic to embrace living in the present and, and like really investing yourself in the next thing. And I love her book because she was on that rat race and she writes about this. Like she was churning out book after book, after book, after book. And to the world, she looked super successful and she was falling apart. She was throwing up. She was yeah. not sleeping. And so, yeah, no, it, it's just not healthy. You just you go with where inspiration is and the timeline is irrelevant, at least in my opinion, it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's I think if you're an interesting writer, you are somebody that's going to experiment with lots of different things that you at the beginning of your career, you'd sort of write what you know, like ish, right. you know, you're sort of that whatever story has been percolating inside of you, that's what you want to do. But then once you've done that for a while, you either say, well, I guess I'm just going to regurgitate the same thing nine more times. Or you say, well, I'm going to now take a chance and start over and see what happens if I do this thing. Mm -hmm. So that makes me feel very, not that it matters what I think about your career, but that makes me feel very good that you are exploring those things because I think that's where internet, like, the one thing I always said in my classes was failure was as good of a teacher as success. And yes. If you're not trying new things, you're just doing what you know you can do. And that's not interesting. That's, that's right. That's right. And I, I'm one of those writers that I'd never want. And, and I think a lot of writers feel this way. I never want to be pigeonholed into you have to write about this. Um, because that would be like saying that there's only one, um, dimension to the human experience. And we right. are multifaceted individuals who have multiple passions. I used to be a food blogger. I might write a cookbook someday. I don't know. Don't put limitations on what <laughs> I can do. <laughs> I think it, you didn't do it. In, weren't there recipes or something in the first book? Ah, I'm trying to remember. If not, might, you talked to me been. about you were going to put recipes in the book. <laughs> be I was, Brad, I was trying to find a way to put it all together. Yeah, because I just remember thinking like, that, well, that's don't do that. Although one of the most famous uh, long distance running books literally is 
uh, what's his name? Scott Jurek. Scott, I can't remember his name, but literally every chapter ends with a recipe. So he writes about like running this amazing desert or whatever. And then he's like, and then I ate this. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty, that's pretty interesting. Like, what did you cook when you got home from this 30 mile run? Did you make any of these said recipes? Oh, no, no, I make, no. I don't, I, I weightlift now. I eat like <laughs> not the vegetarian <laughs> vegan stuff that he was making. Yeah. I don't want to imagine a world without steak. We're getting on a food tangent, right? but s- steak is just pretty great. Uh, well, Lauren, it has been great talking to you. It's been really fun to watch your career happen. And, uh, yeah, it's, it is, I had nothing to do with the books coming out. But it, I feel a little bit like I've had a front row seat to the eight-year journey to it. And so... Uh, well, that's why you're in the acknowledgments, Brad. <laughs> which is weird whenever... Like, I work with a lot of writers, and I do it like... I probably do more stuff behind the scenes than I do in front. Um, when I was younger, I really wanted to be out front. And then as I got older, I'm like, I'm actually much better reading, editing, working with folks, helping them sort of get through their, I'm like a doula, you know, not that I was Uh that involved in this, but like, that's sort of, that's where I find my happiness and joy is watching people go through that process. And it was very clear to me when you were younger, that you were not going to stop. Because I am, I remember several times that I told you, (laughs) I don't know if that's going to work. And you just kept doing it. And I'm like, Oh, well, I was wrong again, (laughs) (laughs) which is wonderful. So thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Well, there you have it. That was Lauren. It was great catching up with her. I've listened to it again because I've missed hearing from her and talking with her. Um, we catch up when we can, but life is busy. If you like the podcast, it'd be really helpful if you could go leave a review wherever you listen to it. Always happy to get feedback. You can email me through the website, thebradking.com. You can buy all my books. You can see what we're doing these days. And until then, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's king.
King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.